Hello, and welcome to Bomb Squad Movie Night. I'm your host, Ethan Hawker, and with me I have... I am Tim M. Sullivan. Hi, I'm Austin Zwiebelman. And joining us, we have a very special guest. Hi, uh, I'm, I'm Thaliarchus. First Timers Club. And today, uh, we will be discussing Isao Takahata's landmark 1968 directorial debut, Horus, Prince of the Sun, also known as Little Norse Prince. But before we get into that, as always, we want to introduce our guest, Thal Thaliarchus, a uh, professor, a long, long-time Japanese animation fan, and uh, author of greatest, uh, perhaps only, work of 21st century epic poetry featuring uh, giant fighting robots in Cosmic Warlord Kinbright. Thal, I just want to give you a moment to, I guess, sort of plug your stuff, um, maybe talk about what you you do a little bit more sure yeah and I, I should say i'm not a i'm not a professor of animation so that's that's a hobby for me it's i know a bit about it but it's uh i don't make any claims to authority in my day job i study and teach uh, medieval english literature and the last couple of years as another hobby i've been writing uh, yeah cosmic wall of kimbright which is an epic poem about giant robots it's, it's a little bit like a kind of gay space opera rewrite of the aeneid in some ways it's diverges from virgil in others it's influenced by sort of classical epics and by old and middle English poetry. It's influenced by some anime like Space Runaway Ideon and uh, Simoon. But you don't need to know anything about any of those to enjoy it. And it's actually, if I gave you the number of lines, it would sound long, but it's fairly short. I mean, it's, we're only talking at the moment about thirty to 40,000 words, so it's like a novella. And it's free. You can find it on, on itch because there's not much of a market in commercial publishing <laughs> for something this niche. So I just thought I'd put it on itch for free and I'm writing it um, book by book. And uh, yeah, it keeps me out of the pub, keeps me entertained when I'm not watching anime or reading books. So yes, that's that's me. That's uh, what I'm doing. Yeah, no, um, I, I really enjoyed it. I finally uh, sat down to read it prior to this recording and also listened to your live reading of it. Uh, thank goodness, because I would have said uh, Quirth Art instead of Quirth Art. <laughs> like a fool. I, I really enjoyed book five, especially. I liked the sort of confrontation with the worm. That gave me something I'd, I'd always kind of wanted in like Dunbine and that sort of thing of seeing, you know, giant fighting robots battling sort of like mythical creatures and monsters and that sort of thing. There's something very, very fun about that conception and it's not explored as much as you'd think in the space of, you know, sort of quote-unquote real robot material. But my thoughts on that aside, we're really thrilled to have you with us today, especially since we'll be covering such a special historic work of Japanese animation, the first of many collaborations between future Studio Ghibli co-founders Isao Takahata and Hayao Miyazaki, a collaborative effort with uh, chief members of the Animators Union at Toei, uh, featuring a murderer's row of talent, including the aforementioned Miyazaki, Yasuo Otsuka, Yasuji Mori, Yoichi Kotabe, and Oreko Okuyama, among countless others. You know, takes a village as Horace demonstrates. <laughs> Produced over the course of three years at a time when other Toei films took only eight months to complete, featuring a cast with an unprecedented level of depth in the realm of theatrical anime, uh, the first sort of theatrical Gekiga anime, with a then record-breaking 150,000 animation drawings. This loose uh, but still daring in its way adaptation of Ainu folklore remains a real marvel, despite the meddling and revisions opposed upon it by Toei higher-ups, been absolutely uh, one of the most significant films ever made, I think, even beyond, you know, anime films or animated films. It's, it's incredibly important. But sort of that, that context set, that ground laid, I would like to sort of celebrate the work of Isao Takahata, the great director who we uh, tragically lost in 2018. So what is your favorite film from director Isao Takahata? 
starting us off. Uh, Tim, do you want to go? Sure. Um, And this is, I guess, kind of an easy answer, but I think it's deeply important to talk about Grave of the Fireflies, probably second only to Schindler's List as being like just one of the most deeply sad and dark World War II films I've ever seen. It really recontextualized a lot of things about World War II that as an American, I was not brought up to really consider like just how badly we just decimated things over there. It's just a really great, important film, really realized and tragic characters. Just a very important movie from a very important director. Yeah, no, I, I particularly enjoy those sort of takes on World War II. I mean, enjoy, you know, is maybe a strange term to use there, uh, but, it, but it is nice sort of highlighting uh, the horrors of this sort of thing. Barefoot Gen falls yeah. into similar ground, obviously, though in a messier sort of way that I appreciate in its own respect. What you doing? Making a grave. Mama's in a grave, too. But uh, Austin, favorite film from Isao Takahata? I, I do think that Takahata is a little bit like Christopher Nolan in the sole respect that he has one film that's just understood by everybody to be better than the rest. Of course, I'm talking about his 1987 documentary feature, The Story of Yanagawa's <laughs> Canals. The best thing Nausicaa ever did for film canon was give Takahata the chance to spend money from its profits on a nearly three-hour film about waterways. Now the waterways of Yanagawa are recovering due to the awakened consciousness of the people. But in seriousness, in recent memory, I'm deeply unprepared for this. I've only ever seen Horace and Kaguya. I saw Grave of the Fireflies 10 years ago and can't remember it properly. So I've only seen sort of the bookends of his feature film career. And comparing the two for quality, I'd certainly say the extra 45 years of practice certainly helped. Forgive me for the narrow scope of my knowledge. Until preparing for this episode, nobody had informed me that Takahata was this extremely influential Miyazaki-adjacent figure. I'd only known him for Grave of the Fireflies, but yes, Bamboo Princess wins my vote. Now on to the people who know more about what they're talking about. No, I, I think that's completely fair. Uh, Princess Kaguya is a, is a wonderful film, very gorgeous, uh, that sort of pushing of aesthetic boundaries in terms of like texturing and that sort of thing mm-hmm. becomes something that he's very invested in, um, and I think that's a really good culmination of, you know, some, something he was clearly trying to do, uh, maybe to lesser effect than like uh, My Neighbor the Yamadas, but no, no, I think it's a, it's a really exceptional film and a completely legitimate sort of fave. But uh, Thal, what is your favorite Esau Takata film? Uh, and it's a good question. It, it gave me pause, and I... I think it's hard to choose between two. And one of them is the, the tale of the Princess Kaguya, which I took a friend who had never seen any anime, any Japanese cinema, I think, um, before with me to see that when it was screening in the UK, when it sort of came out internationally. And it was definitely one of those those film screenings where you go in at 7pm and come out a slightly different person. Um, having seen it, I'm really an extraordinary film, uh, artistically an extraordinary film, I think, for its emotional impact on many people. And it's hard to imagine leaving a better capstone on a career. I can't off the top of my head think of a figure, at least an anime, who has kind of gone out on quite the same sort of well and <laughs> and here is a full stop to, to an extraordinary uh, and actually he, he I think he had a producer role on The Red Turtle but as a director at least a remarkable capstone. The other one though is um, Ghost the Cellist which is not a well-known Takahata work. I promise it's not just a hipsterish sort of preference for obscurities that has me liking it. It's short, it's about an hour long, it's an artisanal film by an 
and large, there are two animators. It's a very small production. There are some lovely moments of animation in it, but it is also, in some ways, a sort of... Um, it's not a constant sort of flourishing showcase of movement. It, it's very measured, very crafted. It took about half a decade to make. It adapts a short story by uh, Kenji Miyazawa, the author of Night on the Galactic Railroad, which has also been adapted into a grander animated film. And Gauche is um, just this lovely gem, this kind of quite small but brilliantly formed fairy tale about craft and music and process, which I happily recommend to anyone to whom those things sound interesting. So yeah, couldn't quite choose between those two, but I would pick those two as his works that I have the strongest emotional attachment to. Uh, those are both wonderful picks, you know, sort of opposite ends of the spectrum, I suppose. I mean, both are, you know, more intimate in their way, but Gauche is, you know, again, like, as you said, a very small production, but intimate in that way. I think mm. it reflects sort of Takata's background as less of an, as a non-animator uh, in a lot of respects, and in a good way. I mean, going to see Princess Kaguya is like seeing an orchestra, and watching Gauche is like having a cellist come to your house. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I think those are both uh, wonderful picks. It, it is hard to pick one because his filmography is so eclectic, which is why I'm going to have another, I don't, maybe hipstery answer, I suppose, in, in my own right. Uh, my favorite Takata film is another pre-Ghibli work. It's uh, the delightful slice of life film, uh, Jaringo Chie, Chie the Brat, which is this really endearing comedy about this relatably dysfunctional family that conforms to a more episodic structure uh, that I feel really suits Takata's style of filmmaking. It's very little wonder that it transitioned into a television adaptation so neatly. Chie especially is a tremendous part of this. Uh, this sort of put upon angry, self-serious little girl in a way kind of a modern like Taisho Anne is a way of describing it I suppose from Anne of Green Gables but you know more silly but she's still allowed a range of emotions that reflect an actual child. She can get emotional. She can get sad. She's dealing with parents who are, are constantly on the outs and are separated. Not a dead parent but just a separation which is you know very relatable and something you don't see explored quite so much particularly in animated filmmaking that really brings together this this film which is often very funny like it's a it's often crass comedy there's a scene where a cat has one of its testicles demolished in a duel with another cat but it's funny it's it's fine it's they're rendered as just two simple circles all that uh combined with uh these really expressive animation and fun designs that manage to be appealing even cute while being less like conventionally beautiful culminate in a really special a sort of movie though again it, that is sort of a description that could be levied at much of Takada's filmography but going into that sort of exploring the range of what would be let's go back to the start of both Takada's filmography and our experience with it what were your expectations going to, to Horace Prince of the Sun Tim would you like to start us off yeah, so uh, this is a movie that I've been meaning to see for a while. I did want to go see it at the uh, anime thing that the High Point was doing recently, but sadly was not able to make it out for that screening. Look, Hilda sings and then everyone starts to disappear on us. Why should the two of us have to labor alone? I'm leaving. But it's one that's been on my radar for a while, and like I've been wanting to watch more of 60s, pre-60s animated films from Japan, because I do like seeing some of the stuff that kind of predates or is like right around that time of the dawn of the sort of anime style that Astro Boy kicked off. Like I had seen The Little Prince and the Eight-Headed Dragon a few years ago and uh, really loved the different style of animation presented there. 
there. So I was excited to see something coming out around that time from an extremely prolific director. No, absolutely. Those um, Toei Golden Age sort of films from 58 to um, 71, technically. I want to say 72 for me, because uh, I consider the uh, second Puss in Boots film, Three Musketeers in Boots, to be sort of the capstone on that unconventional take. I just really like Okuyama's work on that one, sort of the rounded designs. Uh, but the whole whole stretch there of Golden Age Toei films are all really remarkable, um, even the sort of B pictures, uh, such as they were. So it's, it is a joy to revisit, especially this one, which is sort of arguably the cream of that crop of already mm-hmm. wonderful, uh, distinct sort of films. Uh, Austin, what were your expectations going into Horus? Like Hilda in this film, I had two beasts pulling me between opposite stances. On one hand, uh, this movie took three times as long to make as the average animated film back in the day. It used the most cells of any animated film to that point, had the largest budget about any Toei animation up to that point, I think I heard, and key people who worked on it would go on to become anime legends. But on the other hand, this was made half a century ago by a bunch of young people who were inexperienced with feature animation, and it's forever sort of locked in an unfinished state with certain sequences reduced to glorified still frames because of the damn Toei box. And even at a mere one hour, 22 minute runtime, these anime episodes we've done have taught me that's more than enough time to run into pacing issues. In short, I was either expecting to witness the genesis of all those Ghibli films that I cherish, or a movie that can mostly only be appreciated in a historical context by avid fans of the famous folks who worked on it. You know, I, th- I think that's a completely fair fear in its way. You know, first time director on a, a very messy production. I think it bears those scars in its way, but whether or not they severely impact the film is, is certainly something I'm sure we'll discuss. Look at us! We're flying! It's Hilda's! <gasps> Her medallion! She betrayed me! But, uh, Thal, what were your expectations upon first viewing? Yeah, it's a good question. I, it's a very long time since I saw this film for the first time. It must have been, I think I was an undergraduate student um, when I watched it for the first time. And I don't remember much, to be honest, about what I expected going in. But I think at the time, it was the earliest anime that I'd seen. And I'm, I'm glad already we've begun talking about how this is a film which is in some ways a culmination of a pre-existing whole era. And in some ways it is also this very, very early inception point for a set of people. Many of them are kind of young people who are going to grow into these great figures. And mm. I think as a first time viewer, I definitely came to it much more aware of that second aspect. So I think I came to it having seen a few other much later films made by Studio Ghibli and sort of expecting the same sort of thing. And in some ways, that's true but I think also I suspect my expectations were probably confounded but I can't I can't remember to be honest um, all that much about my first experience of watching it no that's fair especially you know if you watched it a while ago of course as for me when I first got a copy of Horace in high school uh, like most things for me it was sort of a blind buy I did have the privilege of owning this film the uh, discotheque DVD release initially I had basically zero literacy in early Japanese animation outside of television productions a la you know Astro Boy Speed Racer stuff coming out of Mushi and Tatsunoko uh, and m- much of my time at this point was spent watching 80s robot anime. Um, I, re- I remember having a lot of thoughts on Fifum at the time I watched this. Uh, approaching it, I knew vaguely of the creatives involved in its making, you know, Takahata and Miyazaki. But otherwise, uh, my initial viewing was fairly revelatory in a lot of ways. It sort of let me down a rabbit hole of research and that sort of thing. But I, I will get into that upon the next question, uh, which is our overall thoughts upon viewing the film. Uh, things that stood out to you um, and how it holds together. Uh, Tim, again. 
Um, yeah, I, I did have a good time uh, checking this out. It's definitely a lot different from the post Ghibli stuff that Takahata was doing. I think it's definitely a lot rougher than uh, his later works. But I mean, of course, it's a first feature. Uh, your style's going to get a lot more refined as you go on, and especially working closely with all of these prolific people. But it was a really neat starting point for Takahata. What century is this, hmm? Ah, ah. Well, speak up, boy. It feels less like an anime movie and more like sort of a classic animated film. Like it's just the sort of story of this boy hero who is dealing with these titanic monsters and these sort of grandiose uh, adventures, which is fun. As Austin alluded to, I think that there is some issues with pacing. There's a lot of kind of waiting around for stuff to happen, but I had a good time with it. I, I enjoyed the characters. There's a lot to like about it. Back to you, Ethan. That, that is fair. I, I do think vis-a-vis sort of the quiet moments, I think because it is so truncated, the way it's not able to revel in those quite so much as, you know, later talk Takahata or Miyazaki mm-hmm. works. They can feel a bit out of place almost. Um, and ex- I wonder if it being longer would actually make those quieter moments feel a bit better to a casual yeah. audience. Um, but Austin, your thoughts? I actually thoroughly enjoyed this film in spite of going into it kind of skeptical because I, I don't know enough about animation history, apparently. Uh, it had plenty of action, high stakes, complexity. Uh, as an animated film responding to the rise of television's growing popularity in Japan since 1950, there's a lot of flashy things being employed by the artists here. People moving in and out of space with a heightened realism, exciting depictions of scale like Moog and the Killer Pike. But as somebody who isn't properly versed on this crew, uh, director, or Toei Doga films at the time, my brain primarily interfaced with this movie through like a Marxist lens. Horus is the product of these students of the late 60s counterculture who partially knew each other through a workers' union. Uh, The main emphasis on using collectivism to defeat a villain is apparent, but I think that you can find that sort of message accidentally thrown into works without an intentionally socialist bent sometimes. Mm. One thing that did strike me as the kind of thing that mainly socialists would put in a movie of that era was the use of Hilda as an infiltrator character. Like, since the initial spread of class-conscious thought and egalitarian revolution, infiltrators who have been compromised by the oppressing party have been sent into collectivist groups to enact divide-and-conquer tactics. It's a classic move the evil bastard handbook. Often, all it takes is one maliciously aligned double agent to split folks into factions based on race, country of origin, you name it. And often the only way to beat ruthless, powerful villains in real life and in movies is for everybody to be on the same page and not trying to attack each other. I think they explored that very well in the movie. I know that the psychological complexity of Hilda's character often nets this movie like major points and helps it stand out from similar animated films of the period, but infiltration causing factionalism is one of those particular problems that's just as important today as it was in the late 60s, and I thought it was groovy seeing such a sort of evergreen leftist political quandary in this Japanese cartoon from half a century ago. Uh, that's my two cents. Back to you, Ethan. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's, it's unsubtle sort of imagery uh, in, in that Marxist space. I always think of the rows and rows of those delightful like pig bellows. It has a very sort of uh, poster-y quality. Uh, you could you could make a print of that. But, Thal, your overall thoughts? 
Yeah, um, I'll try to be concise. First of all, and broadly, this is a film that I like. I've liked it for a long time, so I, let's let's get that out of the way. Things that struck me on this viewing, uh, and I think that are interesting because I hadn't necessarily remembered them as much, and then that might be interesting, is how action-led the beginning of the film is. So there's a good 15 minutes of contiguous peril at the beginning of this film, although there are pauses later. It's definitely pitched for a family and child audience, but it doesn't have the sensibilities of a 21st century children's film. And I'm not suggesting that it's dark or or gritty. Um, I don't even mean that it's a pure action piece like The Raid. Um, (laughs) But it is... I I, I had forgotten just how much of this this film is basically combat for a, you know, broadly, you know, it's, it's an adaptation of a myth for children. So if you're interested in action animation, this film actually kind of justifies a watch. I think actually if you just like that is things like the opening scene with the wolves and the fight with the pike, you know, they stand on their own two feet as like this is really serious artistry applied to the problem of representing violence. And that's that's kind of interesting and I'd forgotten that. A couple of other things in ways that weren't legible to me at all, I think when I first saw it, this totally is in some ways coming from the world of well, we've mentioned these things already the prince and the eight-headed dragon and Hakujaden and these kind of early films made in more or less full animation made by people whose models are partly things like Snow White and Bambi and uh, I think when I first saw this it just seemed like it had lots of motion <laughs> which is a very crude way uh, when I was younger you know of summing up that it's, it's an attempt at a full animated film which except for a few sequences mostly works the other aspect I think that struck me is how mythic it feels uh, so it's, it's about one small village and one demonic sort of oppressive figure but it's framed in these cosmic terms as though Grunwald the villain uh, if he defeats the village there won't be any people anywhere we don't see any other human communities there's at least one line that implies that that Grunwald's kind of stakes are is that, are they going to be humans or not and Hilda has this kind of interiority and I'll get onto that in a minute Horus kind of doesn't have that much interiority I don't think that's a problem for the film and I think that kind of comes from this sort of mythic aspect that the hero is just there doing hero stuff and that's not a problem for the plot in the way that it would be if it was going for a more novelistic approach and another aspect of the film that actually comes both from coming from a world of things like where people have been watching Disney films but also comes from being a myth is that the talking animals are just assumed to be normal and naturalized totally normal background element as in a myth Mm. or an animated feature of of that era the final thing I was struck by was how much screen time is actually spent on Hilda's point of view something between a third and a half of the film is sort of Hilda's story and that includes a bunch of scenes which don't involve Horus or Hulse and you can see why Hilda is this really significant I think character for looking ahead to other anime films not just for female characters though also for them but also just in terms of like representing young people's experience of the world and their inner life she of course has this infiltrator role she's the individual who doesn't fit into the community part of her fitting into the community is in a perhaps a, uh, it, it is over half a century old so I'm not taking points off the film for this but her integration into the community is sort of partly represented by this idea of marrying and kind of doing women's stuff in the film and that's kind of perhaps worth noting but it is it's a very collectivist and communitarian work not only in its plot but also as we might get onto when we talk about its visual presentation a number of the really bravura visual sequences are communal sequences they're not just about 
Horus doing things. They're about the people collectively doing things. And I was aware of that, but it came through even more strongly seeing it again. So, so sorry, there's a bunch of different things <laughs> there, but um, th- those are the things that stuck out to me on, on, on this viewing. No, I think those are all, all wonderful remarks. I think the mythic sense, it, it evokes something like Hercules or like, like Miklos Thordi or something like mm-hmm. that. These sort of strong men, but not in necessarily in the sense that they're mighty warriors, not in the sense of like just sheer power of like like a Superman kind of figure, American comic book sort of thing. And I think Horace fits that well. He's, he's a bit more angry than many succeeding sort of Miyazaki protagonists in particular. Um, there's a, a great deal of Conan in him, uh, despite Conan being a lot more devil may care. But uh, they managed to integrate the animal characters uh, very well, despite a lot of those being sort of mandated by Toei editorial, um, even if it does result in them picking on them a lot. Shout outs to the moment of uh, the owl that as he's just blasted by Hilda's uh, sword and it just explodes in a flurry of feathers. Uh, speaking of, of violence against animals, uh, which happens a lot in this movie, I saw this in theaters as part of a theatrical screening that I spoke in front of, which was a great honor. It was the first speaking engagement I'd ever had. And uh, my mother went to attend. Uh, my mother famously loves dogs. So this, this film's cold open was no fun for her. But um, uh, engaging uh, on a bit more of the, the like substantive points, uh, particularly like Hilda's integration in the society, I think I, I do kind of view this film a lot of the times in conversation with later works. A little bit of Conan, certainly. And, and, you know, Miyazaki is no stranger to, you know, centering those small communities. You even see that in Naushikaa. But, but of course, uh, Mononoke, Princess Mononoke, is sort of, in, in a lot of ways, it feels like sort of a response. It's like doing Horace right, so to speak, but not just really doing it right, quote unquote, adding a lot more of, you know, his, his later sort of ecological concerns and um, differentiating the factions a bit further, shifting away, because he did have that tendency to sort of like center a single villain uh, that you see sort of fade away following Castle in the Sky. So it is great uh, seeing it as a development. I, I can't help but view this as a Miyazaki picture, too, sometimes. I know he was heavily involved in the script writing and that sort of thing. My understanding is that it had a fairly, not totally, but fairly flat structure among its core creative set. If you look at the list of films that Takahata directed and read across to those that he wrote as well, for example, this isn't one that Takahata wrote. And he was brought onto the project by, I think it was Otsuka who insisted. So his his fingerprints are definitely there, but I think it is a film where it kind of makes sense to think about the team making it very appropriately mm. to its themes. And that, that may well include Miyazaki's fingerprints. Um, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, a sort of a collaborative work. It began life as, uh, funnily enough, an adaptation of uh, Ataro, the Dragon Boy, um, when Otsuka was brought on board. That was the first script they submitted, and it was uh, summarily rejected um, before it was shifted into an adaptation of The um, the Son over Chiksani, uh, which is an Ainu sort of uh, folktale adapted from the Yukar, which it's a, it was going to be an adaptation very specifically of a puppet play rendition of that story, which was a very interesting decision on uh, uh, Takata's part in particular. But, you know, obviously he's not credited as the writer, uh, and everyone's con- contributions are felt. Uh, Miyazaki's maybe a bit more prominently because Miyazaki was uh, notoriously invasive on this production. He would, he would muscle in on story meetings and was very defensive of his artwork. You can usually tell when he drew something in this film because the lines are very rough uh, because uh, Otsuka <laughs> didn't correct his lines at all. Uh, that opening is a great example of that. That was sort of a, a long response that got into several of my overall thoughts. So I, I'll try to keep my own answer to this question brief. Uh, for me, it was, you know, as, as expressed previously, a revelation of a film. Uh, I was pretty immediately struck by the quality of its animation, uh, the severity of its cold open. Uh, you don't hear any music in this film until the strap on Horace's axe snaps and you hear that sting as everything becomes horrible and Horace will 
surely die until he's he's rescued by the awakening giant in Mog. It's a hugely personally significant film uh, in terms of uh, getting me into animation. I think the the first animator figure like Miyazaki or even you know director artist like Tomino that I was I was ever studied what I was ever particularly interested in um, as an artist was Reiko Okuyama in part because of uh, Benjamin Edinger's uh, essay on the DVD release of this film which is a great essay it's, it's worth seeking out so in terms of personal formation great love it uh, but the actual film itself is is really a marvel there's a certain amount of really good editing in here too particularly uh, as previously mentioned those audio cues I love 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 when uh, Hilda is standing in the middle of a field and she pulls the knife from her headband and cuts it when the audio just cuts out right when she does that action there's a couple of those where they just cut the audio and it's so effective and just the characters Hilda is obviously the standout sort of slightly informed by the character of the the bandit girl who sort of steals the show in Lyatomov's 1957 film uh, The Snow Queen which was well loved by the toy animators she's the one that people primarily remember the film for I think uh, the the subject of much uh, academic discussion on one of the commentaries one of the commentators kind of criticizes the, the music here too but I like the music I just wanted to say that I guess I really like I like the vocal tracks quite a bit, uh, particularly Hilda's. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why I had to frame that as like you're wrong about this, <laughs> but uh, I, I think I just kind of. I think I would say that the passage of time is crueler to audio than it is to animation in some ways. I love many of the creative choices that are made with the music and the sound effects in the film, but I think they were working with quite crude tools compared to what can be achieved today, which Mm. is kind of not true necessarily for the animation in in that it comes out pretty well in HD, and these animators, some of them are great artists, and animation isn't necessarily... It's not like video game graphics. Like, it doesn't necessarily kind of get get better, basically. And when when Oscar died, we were not going to get any more Oscar animation. And and on on that level, there's a kind of specialness to that... Uh, so I think the audio has suffered a little more from, from time. That's not the fault of the people who made the film, and it still has these really wonderful choices in it. So I, I, I kind of line up with your view there, but I, I guess I can see how someone, especially maybe if they didn't watch that many films from this era, someone might come away from it feeling like I was a bit, the music didn't really come through in the way that I expected or something like that, maybe. It is another thing, too, where you can criticize it because it is slightly compromised. Uh, it was originally supposed to be a, pulled a bit more from that uh, Ainu tradition, uh, and that change was partially imposed upon them by Toei higher-ups. And particularly that there's something to be said about like the transition in the approach to scoring and music in, in Japanese animation media, where at this point it wasn't its own sort of separate sub-industry of, you know, releasing the insert songs and that sort of thing as hit singles and BGM albums and all that. It was a bit more workmanlike in that way. So I, I can appreciate that. But moving on, I'm glad I got a discussion of the music in there. That's nice. I wasn't expecting that. Uh, but now to discuss our thoughts on the film's animation and visual design. Uh, Tim, would you like to start us off? Yeah, uh, like I've kind of alluded to, uh, I think the animation in this film is it's very interesting just in regards to like looking at Takahata's later work and like looking at animated films from Japan coming post 1969. Like it feels a little less like an anime film and more like a classic animated film. Um, It does have some like anime stylings like uh, you can definitely tell that it's a post Astro boy movie by like looking at the designs of the faces and the eyes but uh just like the ways the characters move sort of the scaling of the backgrounds all of that sort of has this distinct difference to it like they do some of those like classic anime tricks to sort of uh save a bit on animation like there there's the blacksmith who has the beard covering his mouth so you don't have to do lip flaps but other than that i mean it, i think it's a really really remarkable like animated film 
And if you're not as familiar with more classic Japanese animation, it's definitely worth checking out for that alone, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a really remarkable film. Uh, Austin, thoughts on this film's animation and visual design? When are we getting a Horus 4K release? We got a 4K release for Belladonna of Sadness. Can we please get Horus in 4K? I, I want to start on like an irreverent note. I want to bring up the sequence where Toto the Owl tells Horus about Hilda's true nature. The way they chose to animate Toto as this sort of jittering creature, quickly alternating between aggressive poses, was deeply funny to me. For me, still to bang on the same drum, the most striking thing in Horus, besides the sort of show pieces like the giant rock man or the giant ice mammoth, was just how um, consistently people move in Z space. The main weapon that Horus uses before he becomes the prince of the sun with the sword is sort of yo-yo axe tied to a rope. Really emphasizes the animator's drive to incorporate depth into their compositions. He often throws it very far away and at super funky angles. And animating the rope in general, I'm sure was no walk in the park. But yeah, it seemed like a really badass way to distinguish the movie from the limited animation of television. Effortlessly moving characters in and out of the frame the way you would in a, like a live action film or a computer generated animation. Except it's a thousand times more difficult because at the end of the day, this is all flat drawings being hovered around on other flat drawings. An incredibly cool illusion that they utilize frequently. Yeah, no, uh, again, I think the Z-Space movement here is particularly impressive. You get a little bit of that in some of their previous works. Uh, Sayuki, they start exploring that a bit more, and you see it in Little Prince and the Eight-Headed Dragon, particularly in the movement of Orochi, the eponymous Eight-Headed Dragon, at the end of the film. But nothing quite like you see here, outside of uh, like some scant things in, in television productions, like uh, Fujimaru. It remains uh, incredibly impressive, uh, particularly moving things in depth. I, I think that's a big part of why people like anime, is because it's just so deep. Foul. Your overall thoughts on this film's animation visual design. It's a great topic to think about. One reason Takahata is a very interesting director is somewhat paradoxically precisely because he didn't come up as an animator. He read, uh, I think, French literature at mm-hmm. uh, the University of Tokyo, yeah, which is uh, perhaps the most prestigious university in Japan. So he came up through the craft of words rather than images, and his films therefore often have aspects of their visual styles strongly determined by someone else or several other people as I think is the case in Horus. So if you're interested in tracing his career, like that's one of the really fun things you can do with this film and his other films is kind of explore how he isn't stamping his imprint quite so much on each individual image uh, as some more interventionist um, directors might do. This was a real landmark for for Japanese animation at the time. I Ethan can come in and probably give more detail to that but one thing I know is that the the fight with the giant fish was one of the, the first really obvious and noted feature film examples of someone playing around with controlling the frame rate of the animation. So doing some things on threes, some things on twos, and some things on ones, so having more or, or fewer frames in each movement, uh, so as to give impressions of speed or weight or slowness. So we're actually, when you see this film, when you see that scene, you're seeing a technique being demonstrated at a high level in ways that many other animators were going to watch within you know the following decade and start thinking actually I could I could have a go at that equally it's a film as has been mentioned where there are some some sequences where what was envisaged couldn't be done the wolf attack is the most obvious one where you have to think about like how many how few images can you reduce a scene to and capture its essence and that's it's quite kind of intellectually interesting even if the scene doesn't work for you which it is fair enough if it doesn't and my three favorite shots from the film are third at the end from Grunewald's point of view looking up when you realize that he's about to be defeated by the sun shining off 
primarily the sword, but also the spear tips, uh, the harpoon tips of the uh, the villagers, which is a wonderful collective image, a wonderful image of collective power. It's a wonderful payoff for the film's title and the mythological idea of you know what does being Prince of the Sun mean. Wonderful in some ways because it's mundane. There's wonderful immediate unexplained magic in this film that isn't really necessarily magic. It's just the sun and catching at the right angle, and which is kind of beautiful. My second favourite is when Horace is climbing the cliff early in the film and he climbs the cliff and the camera jolts up to show you that the reason that his axe has lodged and let him climb the cliff at all is Grunewald's holding it, which is a wonderful jump scare. I've remembered remembered that shot ever since I first saw the film. It's really, really good. Um, if I saw that when I was five, I would have been genuinely quite <laughs> quite upset. And um, my very favourite is Hilda emerging from the storm to help Flip and Coro in the snowstorm when everything is, is falling to pieces at the end which is obviously a really important moment for her character and I don't know I find that image of the newly compassionate villain emerging from the the murk personally very moving in ways that I'm not sure I can articulate so there are you know there are three things that for me are real highlights of its presentation oh yeah those are all wonderful shots I'm so glad you mentioned the pike battle because I was I was going to bring it up if nobody else did because it is such a wonderful piece of animation uh, following on that grand tradition of Toei features having some sort of aquatic battle the salamander battle in uh, Magic Boy slash Ninja Saratobe Sasuke is uh, a personal favorite I love that one a lot Uh, I mean I think the pike battle is actually still my favorite but uh, that particular one is one that is less discussed uh, and I still like a lot. Uh, discussing this film's animation as a whole, myself, it's great. Uh, it's really good. Um, uh, Ryota Fujitsu uh, confirmed this in the uh, storyboard book for this film. The storyboard's being created by uh, Yasuo Otsuka primarily, um, though surely with commentary by the rest of the crew, is that this film is the first animated Japanese feature to be produced entirely using Xerox, uh, or the tracing machine, uh, which meant you could get a lot more detail in there, and it retained a lot more of the original creative's line weights. Um, this is, again, isn't super noticeable in, like, everyone's artwork, but uh, especially Miyazaki's in that uh, cold open. The whole film is full of these uh, tremendous feats of animation and uh, design work. Like, the whole cast was designed by committee, ostensibly, uh, by each of the animators. Uh, There's attribution for each of the different character designs. Um, Horus was Otsuka. Hilda, famously, is designed by uh, Yasuji Mori, and Reiko Okiyama did a number of designs for her. But, uh, I guess, spotlighting a few sequences of animation, Yoichi Kotebe's animation on the marriage of Rusan and Filia is uh, particularly remarkable. Those large crowd sequences, this film, they were budgeted on the amount of animation cells they had uh, for use, so a lot of scenes were printed, like large crowd scenes that would be printed on multiple cells for a multiplane effect were just printed on one, which is really remarkable. Uh, The three-dimensional effect in that sequence is great. It's also very, very endearing because uh, Filia was designed by Areko Okuyama and Rusan was designed by Kotebe. They were famous, they were married. They're a couple, which, uh, I don't know, just as a metatextual sort of thing, I've always found very endearing. There's a lot of individual sequences I could spotlight. Uh, really, I just want to talk about Reiko Okuyama uh, because I love her artwork. The, the opening, the cold open to this film, uh, she actually did contribute animation to it. Uh, two cuts of animation, which previously hadn't been documented to my knowledge, but in uh, Anido's wonderful Reiko Okuyama art book, there's some art that she created of the uh, the wolves charging up at holes uh, right before his axe sort of snaps. And she's great. Uh, she's a chameleon. I think that's something that I've always been super impressed by in her art style is her ability to adapt to the other uh, key artists on a project as much as anything. She contributes a lot of really wonderful designs that are super distinct. I uh, love Mauni, this sort of like uh, kind of uh, proto-Heidi figure, and all of uh, Okuyama's artwork for her is uh, tremendously cute 
uh, Okiyama contributes some wonderful sequence of animation. One that's, uh, again, not quite so much discussed is the children chasing Koro through the town. She also designed all the, the kids chasing Koro. And it's very cute. It's a very wonderful, expressive cut of animation. Uh, but she also did some great cuts with Hilda. Yusuji Mori handles Hilda marvelously, and I don't want to at all discount his contributions. He's he's absolutely one of the most significant figures in Japanese animation. You can see that in, you know, Otsuka and Kotobe and Miyazaki, you know, clearly being heavily informed by his style of drawing and animation in a lot of ways. But Okuyama's cuts on Hilda, including her looming over Horus with the uh, dagger on the precipice of the uh, forest, is a wonderful sequence of animation handled by her. And I, I just like singing her praises, because I think she's a, a pretty interesting figure. Uh, we discuss her a bit in a bit more detail in our Mononoke episode, if you would like to hear me uh, talk, ramble, really, <laughs> a bit more about that. One last one, and that's the scene where uh, Molas has died, and that's reported to the town when he's killed by the killer Pike, uh, and everything is lit in those, that sort of soft focus with those blues, and uh, you know we see everyone's reactions and how they, they're dealing with that. It's just such a striking scene, uh, and so stylish, and it's, it's a lot of those small scenes as much as the big ones that I think make this such an incredible film. Uh, but moving on to our final thoughts on Horace. Tim. I'm glad that I got to check this out. I think it's a really great historical film. I had only previously seen Takahata's Ghibli works, so uh, it was nice to finally get to see something from his pre-Ghibli portfolio. I definitely want to check out the other things he's directed, and I just would recommend this to anybody who uh, wants to get a better look at uh, some classic animation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Austin? I think even modern anime fans who are used to really fluid uh, state-of-the-art animation might have a good time with Horus, uh, because in spite of its somewhat dated presentation, it captures that sense of adventure that Ghibli movies are so famous for now. And for those aware of what Japanese cartoons were like at the time, who can appreciate it in the grander scheme of things, Horus is a remarkable labor of love that deserved much better at the time of its initial release. Absolutely, yeah. Thankfully, it was rescreened in those uh, manga matsuri sort of things, so people could see it at a time before home video. Toei still wanted to recoup some cost on it, even while uh, thumbing their nose at Takahara. It got to inform a huge, a tremendous amount of you know anime academia. Uh, so uh, thankful for that. Thankful for Toei having that, that bit of desire to recoup their costs on this very expensive movie. Val, final thoughts. Unionize your workplace. Um, uh, <laughs> unions are far from perfect, but if you have a job and you have the ability to... Uh, possibly one of the messages of this film is <laughs> um, I've really loved having the chance to revisit this and it's definitely one of the films in anime from this era that are easiest to watch if you're not like a serious a Prince of the Eight-Headed Dragon head although maybe you'll become one if you watch Horus and, and kind of get into animation from this era it is really really good to get back like properly before the beginnings in some ways of what we think of and associate with anime in that say even if you go and watch uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, that feels a lot more in air quotes anime, right? There's ambitious science fiction, there are uh, weird designs and spaceships. The motion feels much more like modern anime animation. So yeah, strongly recommended for its historical interest. So I don't think I would show this to a small child today, partly just because 
and this is an individual judgment isn't it I know. the level of violence is, is actually quite striking for small children I, I think it might still work as a children's film for slightly older children if they were interested in it and especially if you have a child who is beginning to conceive of things like well there are actually individuals and studios who have particular lineages like this is a good example of like here's some early work here's some kind of a brilliant apprentice work by some of the people who are going to go on to make films that a child might already have seen so it's possible that it might still work as a children's film but um, it has a really strong artistic and historical interest absolutely on its own merits and uh, yeah I, I was delighted to have a reason to go back and watch it absolutely uh, it's, a, it's a really tremendous film maybe not too appropriate for a particularly younger audience nowadays that that wolf gets split directly in two <laughs> on screen they weren't putting their punches I mean it's, <laughs> yeah. just sit the kid down with a little bit of water ship down see how they handle that <laughs> yeah. you know there was uh, when Watership down the film adaptation came out that supposedly there was a, a butcher's shop in the West Country in England that had a sign in the window saying you've seen the film and now eat the cast <laughs> like no, my, my own final thoughts uh, Horace uh, Holes Little Norse Prince Little Norse Prince Valiant whatever you want to call it it's a tremendous film certainly worth viewing not only for its significance but only uh, but also I would say on its own merits uh, it's it's really terrific um, and I'm glad I could share it with you guys um, I don't have a you bit um, set up for this one uh, so I would just like to remind all our viewers on YouTube uh, to like comment subscribe uh, what's your favorite Miyazaki or Takahata film uh, does this movie look too old for you are you dumb are you wrong let me know so we can boost in the algorithm and also downvote your post if you think this movie is bad or I don't know if you have good reasons I'd, I'd be interested in hearing them actually be sure to also check out uh, the uncensored version of this podcast on Spotify video uh, where you'll hear all the, the curse words that were uttered here uncensored which I don't know if there actually were any on this one <laughs> I can I can swear now if you want I mean <laughs> and uh, be sure to follow us on your podcast service of choice leave five stars uh, and toss us some money on Patreon if you're able to uh, we greatly appreciate and be sure to tune in next time we're going to be taking a stroll down Disappointment Boulevard to talk about what might be the most divisive film of 2023 Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid do we love it do we hate it are we mixed on it tune in and find out all right and till then take care <laughs> no sign Fire. off bye <laughs>